Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the AIConf.com. In this episode of The Data Show, I speak with Amit Tallwalker. He's an assistant professor of machine learning at Carnegie Mellon University and co-founder of Determined AI. Amit was an early and key contributor to Spark MLlib and a member of the UC Berkeley AMP Lab. Most recently, he helped conceive and organize the first edition of SysML, a new academic conference at the intersection of systems and machine learning. We discussed using and deploying deep learning at scale. This is an empirical era for machine learning, and as successful as deep learning has been, our level of understanding of why it works so well is still lacking. So in practice, if you're a machine learning engineer, you need to explore and experiment using different architectures and hyperparameters before you settle on a model that works for your use case. So training a single model usually takes time. So exploring multiple models takes a lot of time. So Amit and his collaborators have come up with ways to make this easier for you. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Amit Talwakar, Assistant Professor in the Machine Learning Department at Carnegie Mellon and co-founder and chief scientist at Determined AI. Welcome to today's show. Thank you. Great to be here. And uh, full disclosure, I am an advisor to Determined, but uh, we will be mostly talking about machine learning in general rather than uh, Determined, the company. So first off, you got your PhD at NYU right around the time, literally right around, right before deep learning made a comeback. Right. But, uh, but NYU, as many listeners know, is the home of uh, Jan LeCun and Rob Fergus, so both uh, both pioneers in the applications of uh, deep learning. So was deep learning something you paid attention to in graduate school? Yeah. So, you know, on one hand, you're at NYU and, you know, Jan in particular being, you know, a big name and just a well-respected guy, I, of course, was familiar with those methods and I interacted both with Jan and Rob. But it really was the case that up until recently, deep learning and the rest of machine learning, it was very siloed. Uh, there were a small group of researchers, led by Lon, Jan and a few other folks, uh, that were really focused on deep learning. And you know, in contrast, a lot of the rest of us were working on other things. And for me in particular, I was working, I was really motivated in part by my experiences working at Google Research in New York. Uh, and I was focused on scalability issues related to kernel methods. So, you know, I, I discussed with them, but it, you know, it was just a night and day difference between how things were in grad school for me and how, you know, the, the reality of how things are today. Actually, before you went to grad school, you also worked in industry first, right? So were you doing uh, what we would call data science uh, in, at that point? I took a pretty unconventional path towards academics. Uh, I was, you know, I was a computer science major in college before computer science was as cool as it is today. I didn't really know what I wanted to do after. So I, I did work for a software company for a little bit, but wasn't really doing data science. I worked for a financial services consulting firm. I even worked in a neuroscience lab pipetting for a while. So yeah, just kind of a series of odd jobs. It was really useful to just see what the real world was like and what people were doing, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it data science per se. So after grad school, I, I, uh, it's when I met you, you were at uh, AmpLab in Berkeley, 
which is uh, a place where actually uh, you had uh, people from different parts of computer science sit. So there were systems people, people like you, machine learning, uh, right. data management people. So uh, how did that experience change the way you think about machine learning, both as a re researcher, a practitioner, and also as a teacher even? Yeah, sure. So, you know, it was a pretty career changing experience for me, you know, working in the app lab. And as you said, having to interact not just with machine learning folks, but with systems folks, just a very, very smart people, but from very diverse backgrounds who were all interested in machine learning, but with kind of different end games, possibly. Uh, it really forced me to think about machine learning more from a user's perspective and trying to really ask the question of how could my work actually impact practitioners, which, you know, is something that I've really, I'm really fortunate. I feel like I had that experience. And in my, you know, for me in particular, when I finished grad school, I really enjoyed, you know, my PhD, but I was pretty conflicted actually about whether to stay in, t in academics or not. Uh, I felt that pretty much the entire field of ML was a bit too removed from practical considerations, right? ML have this ability to, to do amazing things with data, but we were spending a lot of our time uh, on other things. And, you know, I think, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to bash anyone else, but I can bash my own thesis work a bit saying that I was interested in distributed machine learning in the context of, you know, uh, low rank matrix approximation and kernel methods. But, you know, I spent most of my time developing these novel methods and implementing them and benchmarking them in MATLAB. And I spent a lot of my time proving theoretical results about, about these algorithms. And of course, there's nothing wrong with that, but I, I kind of wanted to get my hands a little bit dirtier. And, you know, interacting with these systems folks, they were in some sense the target customers of these algorithms that I was developing. And they were really excited to learn more about what I was doing, but they didn't really have the same set of assumptions that were per pervasive in the ML community. They kind of only cared about the results, you know, whether they were algorithmic or theoretical, to the extent that, you know, they sort of felt that they could understand that these results actually had some practical ramifications. Uh, and, you know, I think the best way to describe it is that they would ask all these questions. They would, you know, they would ask really simple questions, but that were simultaneously really probing. You know, why should I care about your results? How can you convince me that your method is actually something worth me spending my time building into my system? And those are, you know, basic questions, but they're really good questions to ask and got me to start thinking about research slightly differently and, you know, led to a bunch of new problems in part in collaborations with, with systems folks motivated by scalability and automation, but from a user's perspective. Uh, so it was, really, yeah, it was really an exciting time. Now, of course, uh... You're also you're an academic. Uh, besides doing the startup, you're so you were at UCLA now at Carnegie Mellon. Right. So has that app lab experience changed the way you teach? Yeah, I mean, so I would say that the the first course that I actually taught was you know right before I started at UCLA, I took a year off. I was working at, at Databricks and I taught a MOOC. So the first course that I taught was a MOOC. It was on distributed machine learning using Apache Spark. Who was the audience? Was it uh, just anyone? Doesn't have to be a someone steeped in the theory? No, it didn't have to be someone steeped in the theory. And, you know, as, as we found out while teaching MOOCs, no matter what you say for the prerequisites, if you're teaching about a topic people find interesting, they're going to take it whether or not they think, you know, whether or not they satisfy the prerequisites. So as a result, we kind of had to make it pretty self-contained, uh, you know, and that it's such a diverse audience. ML people thought that it was very, you know, the ML part was very basic, which it was. People who had no experience in it thought that the ML was just way too hard. The math was way too hard. So, but yeah, I mean, that was really interesting. Basically, this whole idea of trying to integrate systems ideas into machine learning algorithms was, you know, it was kind of my first experience teaching and, you know, it's remained a big part of, of what I do moving forward. So then uh, when you got to UCLA, they had uh, probably existing courses. So did you kind of tweak them based on what you learned in, uh, in your postdoc? 
Yeah. So I, you know, I, I taught one course that was just a traditional, you know, statistical ML course. So that was, you know, my own version of statistical ML, but that was a pretty standard ML course. But I also taught another seminar course on large scale ML. And that was, you know, more grad based course, but it was really focused on problems at the intersection of systems and machine learning. And that was very much influenced by you know, my, my research and interest based on the AMP lab. So you were at uh, AMP Lab, which, of course, uh, probably a lot of our listeners uh, know because it's a place where Apache Spark, Mesos, and uh, Aloxio came from. But uh, in your mind, what, how would you describe the legacy of AMP Lab? Yeah, I mean, as you said, those, those were all some great projects. I think that the people that came out of the AMP Lab were also just amazing people. The, the ML people had a real appreciation for systems. The systems people learned a lot about ML. And right, we were really, by the end, all speaking the same language, even though we had quite different backgrounds. So, of course, it helped shape my research agenda. But I think it really, to a large extent, has spawned a new research field. So right, there's this new SysML conference that, you know, along with other folks from the AMP Lab and other people as well, we're, you know, we're, we're leading the creation of this new conference, and it's directly in the same spirit as the AMP Lab. And then, you know, from my own perspective, the work that I was doing, it really, you know, it, it's really the reason that Evan and I uh, started thinking about determined AI. Really, there really are these core problems at the intersection of systems and machine learning. So, I mean, the AMP Lab's had an amazing legacy. So uh, you and Evan started getting interested in... Uh machine learning pipelines and large-scale machine learning and uh, and kind of the end-to-end nature of machine learning. It's not just building the model, but all the steps you have to do to get to the model. So in, in your mind, what are some of the common challenges people face by people who want to use machine learning? And I guess more specifically these days, deep learning. Yeah. So, I mean, there are a lot of challenges, right? We could, we could talk all day about it, but um, I would say that a lot of attention, people, you know, you hear a lot about the modeling of problems associated with deep learning. So, you know, how do I frame my problem as a machine learning problem? How do I pick my architecture? How do I debug things when things go wrong? And of course, those are real problems. But, you know, what we've seen in practice is that maybe somewhat surprisingly, that the biggest challenges that ML engineers face actually are due to the lack of tools and software for deep learning. And these problems are sort of like hybrid systems ML problems, very similar to the sorts of research that came out of the AMP lab. But they're really these fundamental bottlenecks that are preventing practitioners from actually diving deeper into a lot of the modeling problems that they want to be looking at. Now, now, now some of our listeners will say, well, but aren't things much simpler now? You have uh, Jupyter Notebooks, you've got Keras, right. you've got TensorFlow, you've got PyTorch, you've got BigDL. So, yep. And BigDL is even tied to Spark. So. Right. So absolutely. I mean, things are much better than they were in things like TensorFlow and Keras and you know, a lot of those, those other uh, platforms that you mentioned, they're great and they're a great step forward. But right, the, these application frameworks in particular, you know, as an example, they're really good at abstracting low-level details of a particular learning architecture. So right, in five lines, you can describe how your architecture looks, and that's great. Um, and you can also specify the, you know, what, what algorithms you want to use for training, things like that. But there are a lot of other systems challenges associated with actually you know, end-to-end going from data to deployed model. And, you know, the existing, uh, you know, software solutions don't really tackle a big, a big, you know, set of these challenges. So like, for example, it's still, you know, regardless of the software you're using, it takes days to weeks to train a deep learning model. And, you know, so there's real open challenges of how to best use, you know, parallel and distributed computing, both to train a particular model and in the context of tuning hyperparameters of different models. And then, you know, a second big thing, and this is something that was a bit of a surprise to us when we, you know, but what we found out is that 
the vast majority of organizations that we've you know that I've spoken to in the last year or so that are using deep learning for what I'd call mission critical problems, they're actually doing it with on-prem hardware. And managing this hardware is a huge challenge and something that folks like me, you know, if I were working at a company, machine learning engineers have to figure out for themselves. And again, it's not, it's kind of a mismatch between their interests and their skills, but it's something that they're, they're kind of by default having to take care of. Some of our listeners might uh, react in the following way, which is uh, when they think of deep learning, particularly uh, the way it's written up these days, a lot of the action seems to be on the cloud, but you just mentioned on-prem. So why are people going on-prem? Yeah. So, I mean, there is great, great stuff happening by a lot of these large companies, Google, Amazon, for instance. But I would say that, you know, people are going on-prem for two main reasons. And right now it's cost and privacy. So the cloud-based offerings, the hardware are very expensive right now. And people have done the math. If they're serious about deep learning, training a lot of models, using a lot of GPUs, it's significantly cheaper to use your own hardware. And, you know, that, that hopefully will change over time. But right now the economics are pretty, are pretty clear. And then the, the second point, and this is one that's probably not going to change over time, is this issue of data privacy. And this is sort of the canonical argument about on-prem versus the cloud. But you know, in many domains, you know, more and more domains are using deep learning technologies. Uh, and you know, in domains like healthcare and finance, it's you want to keep your data where you are. And so on-prem is kind of the only option. So Amit, uh, do you think that there's some kind of a threshold where, okay, so I'm a company, I want to try out deep learning. So in the beginning, I'm on the cloud. What you're saying is, as I'm getting serious, the economics just favor on-prem. Exactly. When you're just when you're experimenting and toying around, you're not gonna, you know, you're not gonna day one spend a hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars on hardware. You're gonna poke around, see what's going on. But as you start gaining some traction, getting excited about it, realizing this could be a, a big deal for your company or your organization, you start looking at your your cloud bills and you say, huh, you know, I could. You, you inevitably start doing the math, and it's. At least today, you know, it's a pretty straightforward decision. But there's no, uh, there's no free lunch, right? So once you go on-prem, there's going to be challenges uh, to managing on-prem hardware. So are there any specific challenges when it comes to deep learning? Yeah, there's a bunch of challenges. Some of these are specific to deep learning. Some of them are just generally issues with managing, you know, on-prem distributed hardware. But uh I would classify them into two main challenges. So there's data management challenges and cluster management challenges. Data management challenges might be more sort of specific to deep learning. And you know, one, one issue there is deep learning models require you to use a lot of data for training. So you have, say, an 80 terabyte data set. And now how do you just, you know, the simple task of loading that 80 terabytes onto the, the machines where I actually want to do the training. That's a, a non-trivial thing. You need to do that fast enough such that it's not the bottleneck. Secondly, related to data management is this, this whole notion of metadata associated with the training process, both storing and accessing. What we've, you know, talking to various people, what we've seen is that it's somewhat surprising to us, but there's many cases where, you know, we've talked to many people where they say they have models in production where they can't even, you know, and they're working well, but they can't reproduce them. So they don't, you know, they don't know exactly what data they trained with or validated with. They don't know exactly the architectures they were using or the hyperparameter settings or versions of the software they were using. So, you know, in terms of reproducibility, this is really important, right? You might have a model that's great, but if you don't know where it came from, that's kind of scary. It's, a, it, it's not really what you want. And then kind of more of a short term, you want access to intermediate information about these different models that you're training in order to debug and improve what you're doing. So, you know, storing this metadata is kind of a big deal. And even if you have the metadata stored, you know, I, for better or worse, have had to get pretty good at writing shell scripts because even if you are storing the data, it's not necessarily stored. This metadata isn't stored in such a way that it's easy to access. 
And so there's a lot of, you know, munging through log files to figure out, to, to find information that you're interested in. So, you know, that, that's sort of a data management story. The, the, the second component I was talking about was cluster management. Uh, and, you know, these are, they're, you know, part of the issue is that these problems aren't necessarily new, but they're reappearing in slightly different forms in the context of deep learning. And, you know, again, as an example, we've talked to, you know, I've talked to various Fortune 500 companies, big companies here that have large clusters of GPUs. So imagine you have a deep learning team of, say, 10 people, and they have 100 GPUs. It's really common that each engineer might, you know, quote unquote, own 10 GPUs, and they have access to only that subset of GPUs. And when they're on vacation or working on something else, those GPUs are lying around idle. And, you know, for a slightly, a, a slightly more sophisticated use case might be that these 10 deep learning engineers have a shared spreadsheet. So they can sort of check off on the spreadsheet what machines that they want to use. And in both cases, this is just, you know, this leads to high, severe underutilization. And of course, what you'd like is to pool these resources together. But, you know, again, too often ML engineers are tasked with these responsibilities. And that's not really their, that's not really what they signed up to do. And that's not their, or, or is it their core, their core competency? So you, you talked about challenges that uh, seem to uh, pertain to training models. So are there any specific challenges when it comes to deploying deep learning? Yeah. So I think that's a really good question. Uh, you know, model training, as we've been talking about, is it's really complex and time consuming. And it's sort of it's the main thing that a lot of people focus on. And deployment considerations are often kind of an afterthought. But this can lead, you know, kind of thinking about them in a disjoint fashion can lead to real problems. And, you know, sort of a, a canonical story that we see often is that right, an ML team might spend a lot of time and resources training and tuning a model for their particular application. They toil away for months. They finally get a model that they think is, you know, high quality enough in terms of their metric of interest. And, you know, they're about to sort of call it a day and declare victory. But they then give this model that they train that, that they think is really good. They give it to, say, a deployment engineer at their company. And that deployment engineer says, there's no way that I can use this model on, you know, the cell phone or whatever other embedded device where I actually need to serve predictions and do inference, right? And that's because right, the latency is too, too big or the memory footprint is too big or it takes up too much energy, things like that. And, you know, the sort of mismatch between training and testing is really common and it really slows down. Right? It, this is sort of this, you know, as you were saying earlier, this idea of thinking about end-to-end -end pipelines uh, right, you kind of want to consider deployment as part of that pipeline. You're training this model for a reason, and have you know understanding what you're actually going to do with that trained model can really save you a lot of grief. Uh, you know, if you if you do that planning, but people aren't really doing that today. Uh, so that you know, that's kind of one example where I think there's real challenges with deployment. There's of course many other ones, you know, kind of more common ones that are maybe not specific necessarily just to deep learning. Uh, things like you know monitoring to figure out when when your model's gotten stale, when you need to retrain it and redeploy it and just generally serving it uh, quickly. So yeah, there, there's a lot of open issues there. So you're also an active researcher in machine learning, and uh, uh, we just finished talking about some of the challenges faced by uh, deep learning practitioners. One of them is actually uh, choosing the right architecture and then uh, choosing the hyperparameters for, right. uh, for uh, an ar architecture that you've selected. But uh, it turns out that actually uh, you've done some interesting work in this area. And uh, I'm going to actually point to a blog post by a mutual friend of ours, Ben Rack, who uh, described really well what you guys did. So tell us a little bit about uh, your own approach to hyperparameter tuning, which is called the hyperband algorithm. Yeah. So right, high level, we've been, you know, my group and I have been working on this problem of hyperparameter tuning for, for a while now. And our broad goal is... I would say to 
devise methods that have state-of-the-art empirical performance, but which also are simple and provably accurate. And, you know, being simple and provably accurate means that people are more likely to want to use them in practice because you kind of know what you're getting. Uh, and I would say that, you know, there's been a series of papers that we've written towards this goal with Hyperband sort of being the culmination of these works. Uh, and, you know, I'm happy to go into kind of more details, but I, I'd say just the punchline of, of what we did is using this idea of early stopping of models that are underperforming. So remember that when you, you know, when you're training a deep learning model, you're, you're using, you, you train via some iterative algorithm, some variant of stochastic gradient descent. And the broad idea is that you don't need to train every model for the same number of iterations. If models are underperforming, you, you just stop training them early and allocate your resources to more promising configurations. And kind of a little bit more formally, we've, you know, what's I, I'd say novel and interesting about our particular angle to this problem is that we've been able to frame this early stopping problem as a multi-arm bandit problem. So this is a well-studied subfield of machine learning that, that relates to active learning. But by framing this problem, this early stopping problem for hyperparameter tuning as a multi-arm bandit problem, we've been able to, you know, study it in a more principled way and and introduce hyperband as right, a, a nice solution to this, you know, abstract problem. And, and this is something that uh, is broadly applicable to machine learning algorithms in general, but uh, you folks have been using it for deep learning in particular, right? Yeah. So, I mean, to be honest, you know, Evan Sparks and I started thinking about this early stopping heuristic. I think, I don't know, maybe in 2012 or 2013, right when the deep learning craze was starting. But our, our initial application was not actually for deep learning. Uh, but what's, I think, made our work timely is that you know, 10 years ago, even this hyperparameter optimization problem wasn't, people knew about it, but it wasn't so pressing, right? You typically had models with two or three knobs or hyperparameters to tune, training an individual model, you could often do it in your laptop or, you know, it, it didn't take that long. So, you know, hyperparameter tuning could often involve just in an algorithmic sense, just nested for loops in MATLAB, right? And you'd wait, you you go away for lunch, you come back and you, your your knobs had been tuned and you'd be fine. With deep learning, things really changed, right? So now you have now you can have dozens. You can have 20 hyperparameters that you need to tune. You're working with really large data sets. So training each of these models can take days to weeks. And the combination of that means that, you know, you have this large high dimensional hyperparameter space, which means that you have to train maybe thousands, if not more of models to search through this space. And each one of these models takes a really long time. And so you kind of need to think about something new, right? And that could mean, you know, throwing a huge number of resources, more resources at the problem. Or in other words, sort of changing the rules and using your existing resources better. And that's that's where this idea of early stopping and downsampling is really shine. So yeah, it's general purpose, but deep learning is a really, really nice use case for this stuff. As I recall, there's fancy schmancy techniques from Bayesian optimization that people right. that people use, right? So so right. it's and your your particular approach is actually very intuitive and easy to implement. So how about in terms of comparing it to yeah, other so, approaches? Right. So there's sort of two maybe core ways to improve on the standard baselines, which are grid search or just random search. And one way to do it is to adaptively pick your points. Instead of just randomly picking points, adaptively pick your points. Maybe you train 10 models, you see, you know, you, you try to find the hot spots in your search space and, you know, try to selectively pick subsequent points or models to evaluate that you think are in these hotspots. And, you know, that's kind of a very simplistic explanation of what these Bayesian optimization methods are doing. They're trying to, on the fly, learn from past behavior to, to select the subsequent models to train. In contrast, what we're doing is we're saying, you know, we don't actually care how you pick 
the particular hyperparameter configurations that you want to evaluate. We just want to make sure that you're smart in terms of how you allocate resources across these configurations. So in some sense, our two approaches are orthogonal. And, you know, we have, there has been some work trying to try both of them. And I think, you know, moving forward, that's a really good idea. But what I would say is that when you're working with really high dimensional hyperparameter spaces and you're, you're doing a search through a really high dimensional space, it's, you need a lot of samples before you can hope to learn and be adaptive in how you select new points. So in very high dimensional spaces, it's hard for these Bayesian optimization methods to actually learn so much. And you get much more juice from early stopping. And again, I, to be clear, both of them are reasonable intuitive ideas. And I think in the future, the idea would be to kind of combine the two together. But the benefit of our approach is that in these high dimensional settings, early stopping is where you get the most juice. And it, you know, results in an algorithm that's dead simple, provably accurate and easy to implement. And so, and then I would also say empirically, we have compared against, you know, various Bayesian optimization methods. We have, you know, recent work we've actually compared with, you know, internal Bayesian optimization methods within Google and hyperband or variants of hyperband. We have a new variant of hyperband that's uh, kind of an asynchronous version of it. They perform very well relative to, to Bayesian methods. So in many ways, the hyperparameter tuning addresses the problem of, okay, so I, I have a model, I have these hyperparameters, I'm going to pick the best set of hyperparameters, and then uh, that's the model I'm going to deploy. And then along the way, as I'm uh, wading through the space of hyperparameters, I'm training models, and those take a long time, and those are expensive, right? Right. So that's kind of the algorithmic side of things, right? So on the other hand, uh, there's kind of the system side in the sense that maybe there's a way for me to figure out what kind of hardware I should be using to train this particular architecture. You gave a talk at our AI conference last fall, and you talked about the system that kind of did this. I think it was called Paleo. Right. Can you describe, yes. can you describe that uh, system? Yeah, I mean, so I would first say that your description is a pretty good one. Uh, but yeah, the, so Paleo, I, I would call it an analytical performance model for deep learning. And it's really this exact, it's very much getting to the point that you just mentioned, which is this idea that we want to be able to explore the design space of different, you know, at training time of different model architectures and different hardware to find a good fit between how to best train models on different hardware. And similarly, at test time, you could do something similar. Um, and, you know, to give a little bit more background, this, the idea behind this work started about four years ago. Again, another another idea that started towards the end of my time at the AMP Lab. Evan and I were, you know, we, we had worked a lot on MLlib and Spark. There was no deep learning in MLlib at the time. And we were trying to figure out how to perform distributed training of deep learning in Spark. But before actually, you know, getting our hands really dirty and trying to actually, you know, implement anything, we wanted to just do some back of the envelope calculations to see what, can, what speed ups we could hope to get using, you know, at the time we were using GPUs on EC2, and we wanted to experiment, we wanted to see what scales we get with state-of-the-art architectures at the time, things like AlexNet or Inception. And so we did some back-of-the-envelope calculations, trying to, you know, figure, and the two main ingredients here are just computation and communication. And, you know, our, our back-of-the-envelope calculations led us to realize that the speed-ups that we get up to get were going to be very modest. So we kind of stopped looking at things there. But in the last few years, you know, a lot of other folks, both within Spark and outside, have done a lot of work on distributed training. And, you know, a lot of really impressive speedups have been reported. So broadly, the idea of Paleo was kind of revisiting our earlier back of the envelope calculations to try to make sense of a landscape of what's been done already and maybe what would be possible moving forward. So we wanted to write, we wanted to understand this landscape of distributed training. And using Paleo, what we've been able to do is get a good sense of this landscape without actually running experiments. 
And right, the intuition is really, it's simple. The idea is that if we're very careful in our bookkeeping, we can you know, write down the full set of computational operations that are required for a particular neural network architecture when it's performing training. So we can say, okay, you have to do this many ads, this many multiplies, and so on. And we can then map each of these abstract computations to the specific choice of computational platform. And that includes you know, whatever chip you're using, CPU or GPU, as well as how you're communicating you know, if you're training on multiple machines, how you're communicating different intermediate information, right? So once you do that careful bookkeeping, and of course, the details here are very tricky. Uh, we worked with a student at, at UCLA who was great at being very careful. But after working out these low-level details, we ended up with Paleo. And what we were able to do is, via this performance model, you give it as an input the hardware you want to use and a description, say, in TensorFlow of the model that you're interested in. We could reproduce with high accuracy, you know, within 5%, 10% error, various scalability results from things that were published in the literature. And so without running any code or spending any money, you just put in some inputs and you get an output of scalability plots and you can kind of get a sense of, of what's going on. So, so in practical terms, then, what this allows a machine learning practitioner to do is say, here's my data and here's the model I think may work on this data. Oh, God, this is going to cost me $20,000 to train. Right, right. So, yeah, that, I mean, that's so that... Or forget about the money. It'll take me uh, uh, two weeks to train. Right. So. Exactly. Right. So the idea is that you kind of want to, you know, you might not really care if a prediction is ten percent off, but you want to know. You want getting getting those ballpark numbers is really really useful. You can really explore these design spaces both at tra at training and test time uh, without writing code, and it'll help design what hardware you want to buy, what models you use, how you want to do things. So like examples of questions you could ask, and kind of related to what you were just saying, you could say, okay, well. I, I'm on-prem. I have particular hardware. What deep learning architecture is most computationally favorable given my hardware? And again, the different architectures really vary in terms of how much computation versus communication they require. And of course, the communication gets higher as you're you know, training on more machines. So that's one question you can ask. Another really interesting question, and this actually relates back to hyperband or hyperparameter optimization, is that if you're doing hyperparameter optimization on, say, you know, 100 GPUs, there's going to be this trade-off between do I train each model in a distributed setting so that I can get you know, each model trained more quickly, or do I take advantage of the embarrassingly parallel nature of hyperparameter tuning to get the maximum amount of efficiency from my uh, cluster? And so high, you, know, you can use something like Paleo to very easily quantify this trade-off. You know, maybe I'm willing to incur a 10% reduction in efficiency, but then I'm going to get my models trained more quickly. Who knows what the right answer is? It depends on you know, each practitioner might have a different answer. But even understanding that trade-off is something that Paleo allows you to do. And there's a similar idea in the context of inference, where you know we talked before how there's this mismatch sometimes between training and deployment. Well, you could use something like Paleo to you know try to estimate what how a particular model would perform on a given embedded device in terms of latency, energy usage, or memory footprint. And that can really help guide possibly the search process as well. So it seems like with the, the advent of deep learning, uh, machine learning, uh, researchers like you have had to think more about hardware. And, right. uh, and this year, as uh, our listeners will know, is going to be a big year for hardware, not just for U.S. companies. There's Chinese startups targeting the deep learning-specific workload. So given that hardware might improve soon, does this change any of the bottlenecks we discussed earlier? Um, well, I mean, at first, I would say it's it's great that this is happening. It's really cool seeing all the specialized hardware. As an ML person who wants to be able to do more cool things, 
it's great that there's going to be more resources available, faster, cheaper, that sort of thing. Uh, but to answer your question, I think that having more of the specialized hardware making and having it be faster and cheaper is actually going to exacerbate a lot of the uh, problems that I discuss and really increase the need for improved deep learning software. Um, and I mean, there's a bunch of reasons for that, but I actually think the problems are just going to get harder as a result of this. So you're a machine learning researcher, and uh, obviously deep learning has really captured uh, the imagination of the general public, but also of machine learning people because it continues to outperform other approaches. So what are some research ideas and directions that uh, we in industry will start hearing about in the near future? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, I would say that, you know, of course, deep learning and the, the popularity of it really is having a huge impact on the research community as well. Uh, and I think, you know, one of the biggest things that you're already starting to hear, but it's going to become more and more important, is to get a better understanding of deep learning. So, you know, at, at NIPS, the big machine learning conference this past December, right, this was sort of a, a big, big topic, right? So Ali Rahimi gave a provocative talk where it was a great talk. Uh, he equated deep learning to, to alchemy. Um, and, I, you know, I think alchemy is a bit of a loaded word, but I think his point was valid in that, you know, we really don't know. You know I think people would agree that we don't really understand how deep learning works. It's, it's largely a black box. And for something to both work so well in practice, but for us to not really understand exactly what's going on, it's sort of a pretty, it's a super exciting and important and natural thing scientifically or just from a pure academic perspective to want to study and understand. So that's just sort of, from an academic point of view, it's the obvious question to be looking at. But also from a practical perspective, actually understanding what's going on will directly translate in my mind to improved methods, whether that's in terms of accuracy, computational performance, robustness, reproducibility, all the things that you'd hope you'd want. So I guess I would say concretely in the context of, you know, Understanding deep learning better, I think we're going to see a lot more about the theory of deep learning and non-convex optimization in general, both understanding when they work and why they work, as well as their failure modes. When do they break? How can you break them? How can you prevent those, you know, these bad situations from occurring? I also think, and again, we've already started to see this a little bit, and I know when I was in the AMP lab, Ben and some of his students were really pushing on this, and I thought it was a, a great idea, is the idea of trying to develop non-deep learning methods that can match deep learning performance on various applications. And that can, you know, you can compare this using benchmarks. And the idea here is that while deep learning has really achieved great success in various applications, it's really important to know where, you know, it's not, it's not clear that fair comparisons have been made everywhere. And we want to understand what aspects of deep learning from, even from an empirical perspective, are actually useful or what are just sort of extraneous. Um, and I think a related point there is also that benchmarking is really important. It's really important as people are using various methods more and more and claiming state-of-the-art in different applications that people are able to reproduce their results and benchmark them very well. Just to clarify that last point you made, so is that kind of an active area among researchers, this whole notion of uh, finding non-deep learning methods that can uh, match the performance of deep learning on some benchmarks? I know that benchmarks are being created, like Don Bench by folks at Stanford. You know, Ben had a project with Evan and Shivram you know, it was a couple of years ago trying to use kernel methods and they were able to, you know, match results for certain tasks, but not others. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's an, I mean, it's hard, right? It's, there is a reason that people are excited about deep learning for certain tasks in particular. It's very hard to, uh, you know, it's hard to replicate the results using non-deep learning techniques. But I think more and more as, you know, deep learning is used for more applications, it's important to say, okay, well, it's great that deep learning works for this application, but how would you know other machine learning methods have worked for this application? Are there simpler, more intuitive methods that would have gotten similar results? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there might be specific requirements, right? So for example, you might say, uh, use deep learning just to show, oh, this our data is good. So now let's try to find another method that kind of almost matches the the performance of deep learning, but it's more explainable, say, right? So. Right, exactly. So, so we talked about deep learning, but deep learning is just one school inside machine learning. What else is happening outside of deep learning that uh, we should be paying attention yeah. to in industry? I am glad you asked that because I, I very much agree with that statement. Deep learning has done some great stuff. It's exciting, but ML is, is broader than just deep learning. And, you know, it's impossible for me to survey all of the cool things going on in, in machine learning. I'll talk about one subset in particular that is exciting to me and for which I've seen a lot of progress recently. It's related to this idea of democratizing ML. Uh, and, you know, machine learning at this point really has gone mainstream. And of course, that's, you know, deep learning is a big part of that. But, you know, more generally, using data-driven methods for practical applications is broader than deep learning. And it's, you know, people are doing it a lot today outside of academia. And this has led to, you know, a bunch of exciting new branches of research. So one of them, again, this is, you know, related to the AMP lab and what we talked about earlier, this system, you know, this notion of SysML. So, you know, it's really important as more and more people who are slightly, with slightly less expertise about ML are trying to use it in practice, you want to make it easier for them. You want to automate various aspects of it. You want to make it more scalable as they have more data. You want to make it more reliable. You want to make it more reproducible. And these are kind of core SysML challenges because, you know, you need algorithms that are designed for systems and you need systems that actually are integrating these novel algorithms. So there's a lot of work on SysML related to those ideas. There's other, you know, I don't know if I'd classify, it's, it's also, I guess, broadly in SysML, the idea of where are we actually performing machine learning, right? So a lot of things have been very data center centric, but more and more, right, there's the internet of things. We all have cell phones, which are very powerful pocket computers. Uh, so there's this area you know, that I'm interested in personally related to federated learning, which is, you know, trying to understand what computation we can move to edge devices, whether they're your phones or other devices. You know, that can both be learning. That's also definitely related to, you know, inference of models, but basically figuring out where to move the computation and moving the computation to the data as much as possible. And I think a third area that's really interesting is, you know, also there's been a new conference that just uh, started recently. It's called FATML. Uh, and it's related to ideas about you know, privacy, transparency, fairness, interpretability, and ethics. And I think this is, you know, this might be the most important thing for people to start working on. And, you know, there was a great keynote at, uh, at NIPS this year about it, right? The idea being that as more and more people are using ML for real applications that really have an impact on people's lives, it's really important for us, you know, not just for social sciences, but for the ML community itself to understand what the, you know, what these models are actually doing. What are the innate biases in these models? How do we keep people's data private? How can we learn while respecting privacy? How can we be fair? Things of that nature. And you know, I think that's a really important and exciting area moving forward. All right. So this has been great. Amit, uh, thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate chatting with you. You can follow Amit Tal Walker on Twitter at A Tal Walker. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.